All right, we're going to go ahead and get the evening started. So I'm Ray Blanche. I'm the superintendent of schools. I really appreciate you coming out this evening, especially this is uh, one of our warmest days that I think we've had in the spring and all that lovely sunshine and that warmth. And, but I do appreciate you coming out tonight to have a little bit of a focused conversation. Uh, one of the things I wanted to start with this evening is in partnership with our uh, long-term partnership with the Somers Partners in Prevention. And so you can see the kind of logo behind us here. You may or may not be aware of, but uh, over the last year and a half, we had worked with the Somers Partners in Prevention to apply for a federal grant. And that is uh, called a DFC uh, federal grant, but a drug-free communities grant. We were fortunate enough to be awarded that grant um, uh, earlier in the fall. What that grant allows us is a few different things. One, we have a revenue stream that can support a lot of different activities we have going. And that revenue stream has started to warm up a little bit this year. Tonight is actually presented and, and possibility because of the dollars that come from that grant. And so over the next four years, we have a little bit of a revenue stream that will continue to come in to allow these types of activities to continue. And so our focus really is a two-pronged focus on that grant. One, is certainly helping our students make better, healthier choices for themselves and their lifestyle. And so those are mental health decisions as well as those wellness decisions from a physical side as far as drugs, substance abuse, and, and those accords, vaping and those things we have talked about uh, way too much recently. And tonight's conversation will dabble in a little bit in each one of those areas. How do we help our children making good, wise decisions on media, social media, technology, and the reality of, of sometimes if students are struggling in their mental wellness area, they may be more susceptible to social media and some of the negative pieces along with that, as well as substance abuse and the, all the negative sides of that work. One of the things that we are really pleased about is, is that we have seen a really strong outpouring of community involvement. So again, thank you for coming tonight. Hopefully if you are here you have a keen interest to support you, your family, your children, your, your, your children in your neighborhood. And we will, again, have this recorded and placed up on Channel 18 and also on our district website. So if you know a friend or neighbor who couldn't make it this evening, we'll have it available for you to go ahead and see later. So what we'll look at, the structure roughly tonight, is about the next hour. We have our uh, speaker here this evening. And so our speaker here is uh, Dr. Jess Shack, and he's here from the NYU. He'll give you a little bit more details on his uh, background and, and professional piece. I, I think that you will be extremely um, engaged in the conversation tonight. And I know at times it's disheartening just to looking at and having a brief conversation about some of the challenges our children have today. Um, it's been a few years, certainly for our, uh, a few of us since we were children. I tell you, I would much rather have grown up then as a child than now. This, this social media and, and, and the dangers that go along with it, the temptations that go along with it, are just unparalleled to what I was used to. And certainly, I, I, I'm from a family of uh, one of eight kids. I didn't usually have a lot of things left by I got to the seventh kid, but still, the reality is this tough time to grow up right now. And seeing all the families here, and all, we see some siblings here, things, thank you so much. And you will continue to see more and more presence more and more of this experience coming forward. We want to educate our children, educate our staff and faculty, and educate our community. We don't want folks to walk, say, I, I wasn't aware of that. We, and a key part of this grant is to educate, educate, educate. And then how can we make some course corrections? And so I'm going to go ahead and have Dr. Shacken come up here and introduce himself. And then at the end, we'll have a few moments for Q&A, and then I'll just go ahead and close that down. So Dr. Shacken, thank you, sir. 
Good evening. Thanks for having me here. I usually wander when I talk, and so I'm for the filming, I need to stand still. So if I fidget a little bit, you'll understand. I'm just sort of trying to get more steps in. It's interesting that patterns never change. Why do we all sit in the back of a room? You know, it's like we're all back in school again or something else. So I'll, I'll keep my gaze high and try to connect with everybody here. Uh, I was asked to speak about parenting in the digital age. What I do at NYU, where I've been for 13 years, is I'm a psychiatrist, and I have a specialty in working with children. But what interests me the most is adolescence. And I think of adolescence as starting around 10 and going to about the age of 30. And that's based upon what we now know about the brain and about how people behave. There are dramatic changes in the brain from around the age of 9, 10 until the age of about 23. Dramatic. I'm not here to talk about that tonight so much. I'm talking about a very small piece of that. But that's dramatic, and a lot changes that we can now understand, and with that understanding, we can develop better interventions and better practices to help our kids navigate that safely. Still, considerable changes happen between about 24 and 30, not nearly as many, but, you know, car and insurance actuaries have known this for years. Your insurance goes down at 26. You can rent a car at 26. They're no dummies. They know that things change and that we settle and that we become more safe in our, in our activities as we age. But tonight, specifically, it's parenting in the digital age. Uh, these are some disclosures. I wrote a book called Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Teens, because that's what the publisher said would sell better, but it really is, again, that 10 to 30 years of age gap. It's all about how the brain changes, how evolution has designed us to take risks, why we need young people to take risks, and how our programming to date hasn't understood why they take risks and how they make decisions. And so the last 50 years of efforts have not been very successful when it comes to drugs, alcohol, sexual education, driver's education, and so forth. And the last third of the book is about how we can do it better. The book in the middle is really a guide, but it's a textbook, and it's used all over the country for training residents, medical students, and social workers and psychologists in child mental health and its treatment. And I have a show on Dr. Radio, Sirius XM, on Friday mornings, 8 to 10, if you'd like to listen and learn more about child mental health, adolescent mental health, young adult mental health, and call in. That's that. All right. Now let's get to the topic. I invite you to ask me questions anytime, but I don't think that works for our filming. So I think what we'll do is hold questions if I understand well. I, I usually like to have give and take as we go, but we can do it at the end, so hang in there with me. I want to spend a minute talking about mental health issues, simply because I'm a psychiatrist also, because all of these things have ramifications around mental health that we'll be speaking about tonight. In speaking with Phil Cavanaugh and planning tonight, he asked me to then really focus on something that everybody would benefit from, and that is talking about parenting. So we have some real understanding of what works in parenting well, and so I'm going to talk to you about that as well. And then managing screen time and media literacy, which really brings us to the heart of why I was here, or invited to be here. So give me 20 minutes to do sort of the introductory stuff, give me 20, 30 minutes to talk about media and, and digital health, and then we can have a discussion. Maybe I'll go 60 minutes, we'll see. All right, mental health. First, there's a lot of mental illness in society, and with every generation, we find more. We find more because we're looking for it more carefully, because we've trained people to look for it carefully, and because probably, as was mentioned, there's increasing stress. With each generation that we study, we see higher rates of mental illness, more depression, more anxiety, more substance use. And if we look at the causes of death and disability, among our young people in our population, we find that it's largely due, 85% of the deaths between the ages of about 13, 14, and about 35, 
85% of the deaths are due to behaviors. Accidents is the first cause, suicide is the second cause, and homicide is the third cause. And those three together comprise about 85% of all deaths that young people face. And these are all driven by choices and behaviors in which they engage. A lot changes in this period of adolescence and young adulthood, and that's when people engage in drunk driving, unprotected sex, jumping off the bridge into the river because their friends did it. There's tons of reasons why we do that, and it's in the book. But the focus is understanding that most of what gets our kids into trouble happens due to the behaviors in which they engage, which are driven by the new ways they're thinking, the cognition, as I put on the slide, and the emotions they're feeling, which overwhelm them, are intense and are new. The Surgeon General does a report about every year, every 18 months, on some health issue. A lot of times it's tuberculosis or diabetes or obesity or <clears throat> coronary artery disease. <clears throat> Pardon me. But in 1999, for the very first time, they did one on mental health. And they said that 20% of children, by the time they hit 18, will have suffered a DSM diagnosis, which is DSM is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. It's our code book. But a DSM diagnosis of some sort of mental illness or disorder, depression, anxiety being the big ones, but of course things like ADHD, conduct disorder, uh, drug dependence, and so forth. So that was their estimate. And that was based on lots of different studies that had been done. But a few years later, we did some much better studies. And these are our estimates today. We estimate that just about 50% of young people will have a psychiatric diagnosis or will have had one by the time they hit 18. Just let that sink in. One, two, one, two, one, two. That's every other person who's in your school right now is going to have a diagnosis or has a diagnosis or had a diagnosis in the past. These are things like, again, depression, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, Tourette's, uh, you know, any kind of anxiety disorder you like, panic, social anxiety, any fear or phobia, OCD, major depression, bipolar disorder, even schizophrenia starts to show up mid-late high school. But a quarter of all kids, half of those who earn a diagnosis, are going to have a severe disorder. And the severe disorders are the depression with suicidal thinking or behavior. Anxiety that is so crippling that they can't go to school or complete their obligations. Drug use that really gets in the way of all their relationships and all their functioning. So major problems here. And about, you know, if you take out substance abuse, which hits about 5% of kids to that disabling degree, then it's about 22% of kids who have a major psychiatric illness that isn't substance use. So the numbers are really high. And every generation, we keep seeing these numbers rise. We now know from studies of adults that 50% of all major illness, that a, a major psychiatric illness that adults experience sets on by the age of 14. That doesn't mean the diagnosis necessarily would have been achieved, essentially, that all criteria would have been met, but that they started to have difficulties relating to in their life and how they function at school, with parents, their job, whatever it was, by the age of 14, and 70% by the age of 24. So that means that we really need to be addressing these issues as early as possible. High school is even late, that we should be thinking about this at the very earliest of ages with kids. Do you know about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences? If you've been to a new doctor recently, maybe a more recently trained doctor, a younger doctor, or you've changed practitioners, your doctor's probably said things to you like, so were your parents uh, in a contentious divorce when you were young? 
Did anyone in your family go to jail or were they incarcerated? Did anyone have a drug addiction problem? Was there any violence in the home? These are all ACEs. These are adverse childhood experiences, many of which we experience. In fact, more than 50% of kids in the nation experience at least one ACE growing up. And now we know that the more ACEs you have, the more difficulties you're going to have as you age. Partly, it's what happens in school. You're twice as likely to be bullied. You're four times as likely to be a bully. You're eight times as likely to be expelled from school. But it also is the kinds of things that track with you as you age, so that you have higher rates as an adult of hypertension, obesity, diabetes, drug addiction, losing a job, unintended pregnancy, sexually transmitted infection. All of these things track with more ACEs. It's not surprising when you think about it, but we have the data now. So again, preventing or ameliorating trauma early in life is something that has huge psychiatric and physical health benefits as we age. Finally, we know that more than 50% of teenagers have experimented with illicit drugs. Of course, marijuana is the most common one. We don't count alcohol in this. We know that you know, more than half of the kids have tried alcohol. But it's other drugs, too. It's increasingly cocaine, which kind of ebbs and flows and is back again. It's hallucinogens, which go up and down. So there's a lot of drug out there. Substance abuse always starts during the teen years. You never, ever find a 45-year-old man or woman who tried alcohol for the first time and is now addicted. It just doesn't go that way. If you haven't tried weed by the time you're 26, there's almost no chance you'll ever try weed. Addiction almost always starts during those 13, 14 to about 19 years of age period. And this curve that you see here, this hump, is something we see in every single drug or addiction that we look at, whether that's tobacco, whether it's caffeine, whether it's alcohol, or any other drug. You may start with weed when you're a teenager, and it may migrate into something different over the years, but those addictive patterns start early. And... All of these addictive patterns lead to our three most common causes of preventable death in our society and the three things that kill over a million people every year. We've known this now for about two decades. Smoking, number one killer in America and in most countries, kills a half a million people plus a year. Being overweight and the attendant problems of obesity kill three or 400,000 people a year. And alcohol, the remaining of the big three, all of which are due to addiction in some form or another, certainly you can argue, and all of which are preventable. So that's my mental health and physical health message that I wanted to start with, just to get things off on a great note, <laughs> so that what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about parenting in the digital age, or when I'm thinking about risk-taking behavior, or when I'm treating ADHD, whatever it is, or depression, these are the kinds of things I'm always aware of. I know how much, and I think you know how much from your own experience or the people you've known or your family members, you know how much this kind of thing, when it sets on early, impacts people's lives down the road. Did you know that 51% of Latina teens in America get pregnant? 51% many of which, of course, the majority of which are unintended. This derails you. Pregnancy, automobile accidents, addiction, um, you know, major injury or disability, these things change your life forever. Now, it doesn't mean you can't recover, but they change your life forever, and they tend to happen first in adolescence. All right. Now let's talk about parenting. We know now about 
the most effective, as we understand it, parenting practices, what really works. And my guess is that a lot of you here tonight do these things simply because you're here. You're a biased audience. You're a select audience. Of course you're going to come to a talk like this because you care so much about your parenting and you're thinking about it all the time. So what I say to you may be old news, but maybe not, and I think you'll find it interesting nonetheless. In 1966, a woman named Diana Baumrind at UC Berkeley decided to study the kids in the nursery, or the the preschool and nursery, for faculty and graduate students' children. And she started to watch these kids and try to get a sense of how they behave and what their parents are like. And over time, she found that certain kids did much, much better, not only in preschool in their behavior, but also as they aged. They did better in, in elementary school and in middle school. They had higher IQs. They had higher SAT scores. They went to better colleges. They had lower risk of pregnancy. They didn't get into drugs as much. And the parents that she looked at practiced the style of parenting that she ended up calling authoritative parenting. How many people have heard of authoritative parenting? So a few of you. You either work in the field or you you read about this kind of thing. Authoritative parenting she distinguished from other types of parenting, which I think is here, authoritarian, permissive or indulgent, and negligent. Authoritarian parenting is the old-fashioned parenting that many of us grew up with. Why? Because I said so. That's authoritarian parenting often not explained, often not described, simply the way it is because that's the way you do it. Permissive or indulgent parenting is sort of like, yeah, sure, take the car. Listen, go out tonight, but don't drink too much. You know, be careful. That may not, that's not the absolute worst thing you can say to your kid when they're going out with the car and drinking, but it is permissive. It's a permissive thing to say. It's like, yeah, I know what it's like. You know what it's like. Let's just kind of use good judgment, you know. And the third is negligent, where the parents don't even know what the kids are doing. All of these types of parenting, which many parents engage in periodically or exclusively, result in kids who don't do well in all those parameters I talked about before. What does work is authoritative parenting. Authoritative parenting is defined as being loving and kind and clear with your commands and Uh, holding your kids accountable, and setting limits and consequences when you need to. So these are parents who are very directed, who know exactly what they want, who encourage their kids in the right direction, give them lots of positive reinforcement, love, and affection, and then take them to task when they don't behave as expected. They don't brutalize their kids. They don't harm their kids. They don't spank their kids. Spanking doesn't work. I don't know what you've read or what you've seen. Every single study shows spanking doesn't work. That's authoritarian. What works is taking something away if you must, timing out if you must, but five to one, five to one, just like in the loving relationships we have with our spouses, five to one, positive to negative, never less than five to one. Three to one, those marriages don't last as long. Five to one, those are the marriages that last, and those are the trainings for, uh, those are the, those are the, uh, the, the child-rearing practices that work. By the way, I'm going to sound pedantic right now. You know, I'm sounding teachy and preachy, so you have to forgive me. I have the same struggles that we all do. I know the data, I know how it works, and I do the very best I can with my kids. But sometimes we make mistakes, and I know that. But I'm going to try to present it to you as we understand it tonight. Children raised in authoritative home become adolescents with better grades, less anxiety and depression, higher self-esteem, more social competence and self-reliance, lower rates of antisocial behavior like theft, drug abuse, and all the rest of it. And now we've looked at their brains. 
The kids raised in authoritative homes have attenuated or slowed growth of the amygdala. The amygdala is a very important part of the brain at the top of the brainstem and the midbrain. This part of the brain is the threat center. It's where we read emotions. It's a big part of where we read emotions, how we know if someone's happy, sad, or otherwise. And it's how we perceive threat. And we know that antisocial kids, kids who end up as juvenile delinquents, for lack of a better term, or go to jail, that these folks have highly reactive amygdalas. They are overstimulated in the amygdala when they see faces, and they misinterpret faces as hostile, even though that might just be a questioning face. Walk down the hallway, see someone, and the person goes, and that face they might misinterpret as hostile, because these kids are primed for agitation and anger, and the kids who are raised outside of authoritative parenting homes have um, attenuated growth, or I mean, sorry, have more growth of the amygdala, more activity in the amygdala. The kids raised in authoritative homes have a slowed or a calmer threat center. And they also have less demanding brain reward centers. This is largely what's called the nucleus accumbens, but this is a part of the brain that senses reward, like how exciting it will be to drive 100 miles an hour, how uh, thrilling it will be to have unprotected sex, how amazing it would be to jump off the bridge into the river or to get drunk tonight or to keep drinking though I'm already drunk or to try that new drug even though I don't really know what it is. These are brain reward centers more turned on in the brains of kids who are not raised by authoritative parents. How do you get to raising your kids in an authoritative fashion? You follow the rules of what's called behavioral parent training or parent management training. Again, things that many of you are doing all the time, maybe exclusively, and, and that's terrific. But parent training is something we've been learning about for about 50 years, and it, it allows us to teach the tools of authoritative parenting to parents. So what are those, what are those tools? The techniques are positive reinforcement. And many parents come to me and they say, oh, I've tried positive reinforcement, it doesn't work. It's like when I say you've got depression and you need to take a medication, and they say, I tried Prozac, it doesn't work. I say, how long did you take Prozac? They say, two days, it did nothing. Well, if you work in the field of medicine, you know that you've got to take Prozac for probably at least two weeks and probably more like eight weeks to know if it's really going to be helpful for you. And this is the kind of response we often get from parents. I tried positive reinforcement. I was really nice. I was really encouraging. It didn't work. It takes a lot of practice, and it takes a lot of control over your own emotions, which are pretty agitated and frustrated when you've been trying to get your kid to correct for a long time. But positive reinforcement means looking for every opportunity to praise your kid in a genuine way when they not only do what you want, but start to do what you want. They move in the right direction. 25% of perfect might be enough. And how you praise them and the frequency with which you praise them is the key here. So that's all I'm going to say about that, but I'm happy to talk more about it afterwards. There are good books I can refer you to. There are great trainers who can do this. You can have classes in this. You can have individual therapy sessions in this. The great news is it takes about eight hours to learn parent training. The second thing is effective commands. So this isn't questioning like, how about brushing your teeth now, bud? Or what do you say about cleaning your room? It's about being very direct in our command. It's time to do this. This is what we do now. The plate goes in the sink. However it is you say it, you're telling kids what to do, and you're giving them commands. And the commands work much better than questions, which don't work. And the commands direct the kids to exactly what you're expecting. And as soon as they do it, you can positively reinforce them with what we call labeled praise. You can say exactly what they did that you liked, which increases the frequency of that behavior. Any of you who train pets, it's the exact same thing as training a dog. You're using the exact same techniques. You positively reinforce. You pair things so that the brain starts to pair them together, and it works 
brilliantly. And by the way, all the research comes from B.F. Skinner, John B. Watson, Ian, Ivan Pavlov with the dogs and the drooling. It all goes back to that. The third thing is selective or active ignoring. You're not ignoring your child. What you're ignoring is the behavior they're doing that's causing you a problem. And you're only ignoring that which can be safely ignored. So not every behavior. Only those things that aren't going to get them in some sort of permanent trouble, hurt them, and so forth. You can't ignore the kids hitting each other necessarily. Sometimes you can, but not usually. You can't ignore the kid running out in the street. But you can't ignore, when do we get to grandma's house? I want a cookie now. Those things you can teach your kids you're going to ignore them. You can actually ignore them. Of course, when you start ignoring them, what happens to the behavior? It gets worse for a short period of time. That's an extinction burst. And eventually, it goes away. Scheduling. I'm not advocating helicopter parenting. I'm advocating knowing your kids' friends, knowing your kids' friends' parents, and knowing your kids' schedule, and having some connection to that so that you're engaged with their life on a regular basis and that you are in touch with how they're spending their time. And then you can do a lot of things to enhance the bond between parents and kids, what we call the milk and cookies hours, the way we talk with kids, the food rules we set up. There's lots of techniques embedded in how we schedule things. We can talk about more later if you want, but we have all sorts of techniques to teach any kid who's really picky eater how to eat like everybody else. So there are lots of things in here that are useful. Rewarding good behavior, of course, and identifying the rewards that our kids want. So it's different for teenagers than for you know, preschool kids and all the way along. But identifying the rewards our kids want and then targeting our commands towards the reinforcers using those rewards. Sometimes this is behavioral reinforcement or reward plans that we end up building, little grids and graphs that some of you have built with your younger kids. But at this age, what do our kids want? They want a phone, they want the car, they want to go to the party, they want to go to the overnight. There are things in amusement park. There's things they want that are predictable, and we can plan around that. Finally, after parents have mastered those first five components, which are all positive, we then teach them about limit setting and the application of consequences. We are not keen in the science of parenting, in the practice of healthy parenting with punishing our kids. Absolutely, we have to do it sometimes. None of us, you nor I, get a charge out of punishing our kids. Sometimes it's necessary how long we punish them, what we punish them for, and what we take away, which is what works the best, is taking something away. Works not as good as positive reinforcement, but it's the best form of punishment we have. We take away two things. We take away an object or activity they want, that's the limit setting with consequences, or we take away their social reinforcement, which is a timeout. We put them in a, in a place where they're not getting social reinforcement. So those are the two things we take away. We don't apply a punishment like a, a spanking if we can help it because we know from all the data that spanking doesn't work. You may say it worked for you or your family or whatever, and I would argue that the, based on every, all the research we have, that the negatives of spanking actually outweigh whatever gains you achieved. In any case, kids become immune to it, as we all know, just like they become immune to taking things away. I can't tell you how many kids I've worked with who have only in their room a mattress, and the parents say, I've taken everything away, nothing works. It's just the same as, as spanking. You've just kind of ripped them of every possibility of earning back your trust, getting back on track. And so, again, we can talk more about this later if you like, but these are the keys to, to raising kids in an authoritative way. Tons and tons of data on the benefits of authoritative parenting. The other thing we can do is enhance our supervision. The more we know about our kids' lives, the fewer risks they tend to take. And again, this is back to knowing their friends, knowing their friends' parents, all that kind of thing. 
And the more parents communicate with their children, the more the parents are seen as trustworthy. So asking your kids good questions, listening and waiting and talking and having give and take, having a, a dinner time, you know, having time to really reflect and be with your kids. You don't have to be with them 10 hours a day, although that's lovely, but you know, 15 minutes a day of real communication and connection as they age might be enough many days and more hours on other days, but really being present with them, letting, know, letting them know you're listening, that has a huge impact on how they view you, and if they think you're trustworthy, they'll bring you their problems, and they won't just bring them to the Internet. They'll come to you and ask questions. They'll verify things they've read on the Internet with you. They'll verify things their friends told them with you, even things about very intimate details around sexual activity or substance use and so forth. The more we talk, and now kids are different, of course, but the more we communicate, the more we know what they're doing, the more they talk to us. Is it ever too late to use the tools of parent training? Not really. In fact, whenever I teach parents these things, what they tell me is that they do better now not only with their child, but also with their spouse, with their boss, with the people who they supervise, because this is basic behavioral modification. So what we're teaching is behavioral modification tools to help manage disruptive, difficult, challenging, negativistic behavior. And these tools work. It's best using these particular tools when the kids are between about two, which is when they start saying no, and between about 12 when they can finally say, screw you, I'm going down the street. They have the ability to leave the house. They can run away. They might feel brave enough to do some of these things. So two to 12, the evidence is really strong for these techniques. After that, it's harder, but the techniques do still work. When our children are, are young, they live in an autocracy. As they age, it's more of a social democracy, but the parents must maintain a veto. So this is how I like to frame this for parents. I think that's all I've got to say to you about the parenting uh, specifically before we get into screen time. But I, I welcome us an opportunity to come back to that. I just want to look at my time to see how we're doing. We're doing okay. Uh, these, these parenting techniques are gold. I just can't tell you how much I have relied on these in my personal life with my now 18 and 20-year-old and with all the families I work with every day. A lot of what I do is, I didn't tell you what I do. I do clinical care. I run educational programs. I run the training program at NYU for child adolescent psychiatry. I run our weekly Grand Rounds lecture series, and I teach a program that uh, is the largest college minor, maybe the largest college, college department at NYU at the university downtown. We have over 5,000 students in our 49 courses, um, which we offer over 100 times all year at NYU at the university at the college. So a lot of education around these kind of issues. Take a moment to read this statistic. Now, I'm not talking around toilets that everybody has in Armani or whatever, the Gucci gold toilet. I just mean a pit in the ground to make a poop. That's what you need. And only 4.5 billion people in the world have one of those. But 6 billion people of the 7 billion have access to a cell phone. Something's going on. There's a huge change here. We've started to prioritize things like the $1,000 you know, cell phone over basic sanitation for a lot of people. We've started to prioritize access to a cell phone over all sorts of things. Let me ask you right now to raise your hand if you believe, as a parent, I'm not asking the kids, but if you believe that your child must absolutely have a cell phone for their health or their safety or some aspect of their life that is absolute, please raise your hand if you believe your child must have a cell phone. Please raise your hand if your child does have a cell phone. 
Okay, so we're all in the same boat. We know that our kids don't need cell phones, but you're paying probably 1200 a year for your child's cell phone with the rental fee, with the internet access, and everything else. Steve Jobs is laughing in his grave. I don't know how else to think about it. Why did this happen? Well, that's another conversation. Let's talk about what we know about what's happened. 75% of youth have at least one electronic device in their bedroom. 45% of youth have a television. A third of kids in America keep the television on all night long. The median number of electronic devices in kids' room, this means a number down the middle. If you are uh, 6 to 11, you have one electronic device in your room. This is not a clock. This is a TV, a computer, or a phone, or an iPad. If you're 14, 12 to 14, you have two devices on average. And if you are 15 or over, you have three devices on average in your room. I do a lot of work in sleep. Sleep is a particular area of interest of mine, both for research and education and clinical work. And what I know is that having a cell phone in the room, and we can talk about why later, is really bad for your sleep. Before the internet, okay, 1998, before people had access to the internet, children in the U.S. on average saw 8,000 murders and 100,000 other violent acts such as assault and rape on TV prior to middle school. Now they see more. In 2006, a review of 400 studies found a significant correlation between exposure to media violence in television, video games, movies, music, and comic books, and aggressive behavior, aggressive thoughts, angry feelings, and physiologic arousal, like increase in heart rate and blood pressure. So you know how you feel when you watch a Rambo movie before bed. You go to bed amped up, and it takes a little longer to fall asleep. In fact, many of my friends won't watch thrillers or you know, dramatic war reenactments within an hour or two before bed because it just amps them up too much. That's what Fortnite and other things do to people, right? These games, they jazz us up. And this link between aggressive feelings, ideas, thoughts, and physiologic arousal is stronger than the link, which, by the way, is significant between passive smoking and lung cancer. So this is not just a passing fancy. This is a, a mild to moderate effect size, which means that it really does have a meaning and it really does affect us. All right. Let me tell you something about melatonin and screens as well. You see a Hershey's Kiss in the corner. That's because the chemical I'm going to talk about is called Kispeptin, and it was named and found at the Hershey Medical Center in Pennsylvania. So they named it after the Hershey's Kiss, Kispeptin. Kispeptin is a chemical that is triggered in its release by significant drops in melatonin. Kispeptin starts the pubertal cascade, which means that when Kispeptin levels drop for a sustained period of time, puberty starts. And if you look at the grid, the grid on, the, on the left, you see those, that's melatonin dropping at you know, different ages in life. Melatonin drops dramatically around puberty. In fact, we think that melatonin may be one of the keys to when puberty starts. Interestingly, people who are exposed to more light, like those who live near the equator, have the earliest puberty on record. More light means less melatonin. Just like you feel on a cloudy day or in the dark, when your body starts to release melatonin, you feel sleepy. So when you are exposed to light during the day, blue light from the sky, from the lights in a room, you feel less sleepy. If you have seasonal affective disorder, we actually have you look or read near a bright light that shines light for 10 or 20 minutes a day in your vicinity so that you will have less melatonin. It will perk you up and give you a better mood. We are exposing our kids to screens at levels that we have no understanding of. 
If our kids are getting about, as the Kaiser study suggests, about 11 hours of media exposure a day, about, and that's multifactorial, that's music, let's say, and screen at the same time. On average, kids are getting about six to eight hours of exposure to screens a day. If they're getting that much light, then we believe that that's blocking some of their melatonin. We believe that's uh, contributing to the earlier puberty that we're seeing in the United States and throughout the Western world, and that is a risk. Early puberty means higher rates of all sorts of things, from cancers to pregnancy to drug use. We actually don't want early puberty. We don't want kids having their periods at nine. That's not good for them. So this is a problem, and it relates directly to screens. More bad news about screens. I'm just like an awful person to you tonight. (laughs) Screen use impacts the brain and is associated with gray matter decreases. Gray matter are the nerve cells of the brain, so these are not causal as far as we know, but they are strong associations. So those who use screens more tend to have smaller amounts of gray matter. Gray matter is the good stuff. Those are the nerve cells you want in your brain. Reduction in frontal cortical lobe thickness, which is how essentially um, active and how strong your frontal lobes, which is the CEO of the brain, your personality is. Reductions in attention span, of course, we know that from just watching people on screens. Poor task performance involving memory and cognition, so thinking and, and remembering are affected by screen time, as is uh, reward sensitivity and decreased sensitivity to loss, so you care a little bit less about losing things, and you have a higher reward sensitivity. You want rewards again and again, faster and faster. Neurological signs of craving related to dopamine, higher rates of obesity, and worse attention. So all of these things are associated with more screen time. Now, some of the data for this comes out of South Korea, because South Korea has an enormous problem with gaming addiction. So we don't know how many hours of exposure you have to have in a day to start to experience these things, but they are associated. We don't know if it's caused. We'll never have a study knowing that because we'd have to do very unethical things to get that answer. But we do know that it's strongly associated. We know that when a cell phone is present, let's say you have a meal or a meeting and you put your cell phone on the table, what happens then? Your conversational partners say that that's a lower quality relationship and they feel less close to you. Your conversational partner says they have less trust in what you're saying, and they don't think you're listening as well, and and that you have less empathy for them. So just having a phone present, if I give this talk like this with my phone here, you are likely, when surveyed upon departure, to say, yeah, he was all right, but I'm not sure he was totally paying attention to us because I'm looking at when this lights up, and I'm glancing down every now and again, and I'm just keeping an eye on things. And that has an impact on what people think, And when you temporarily remove media, so you take kids for five days or a week and you take their phones away, they give you a hard time for a couple of days. And then, you know what happens? Without their teachers knowing which kids got their phones taken away, without their friends knowing which kids got their phone taken away, they say, you know, I feel like he's watching me more carefully. I feel like he's picking up on nonverbal cues more. I feel like he's more sensitive to me. I feel like we're having a better conversation. And the kids actually report that they feel happier. Limiting screen time reduces childhood obesity. We have a lot of data. Now, I'm not, you know, uh, wanting to step back into the Stone Age. The phones are here. I get it. The screens are here. I totally get it. We have to figure out a way to deal with it. There are lots of evolutionary reasons as to why these screens are so attractive to us and some very practical reasons like networking and accessing data and all the rest. But they are a big part of our life. I like to say that God created the fruit bowl to put the phones in them. 
And here are some tips for you and thoughts to consider when you think about how to manage your cell phones at home. So first, postpone screens as long as possible. There are some national movements around this. One is called Wait Until Eighth, which is the idea of not giving your kid a smartphone until eighth grade. We held off in my family until our kids were in ninth grade. We were heroic. We were one of the very, very last to give our kids a cell phone. And the whole time, I went kicking and screaming, saying to my wife, who was also kicking and screaming, they don't need this device. With the exception of school shootings, which have gone up, And by the way, a phone's not going to stop you from a school shooter. There's just nothing about a phone that's going to protect you from a bullet. But with the exception of school shootings, the world is much safer for our kids than it was when we were kids. There are far few kidnappings, far few molestations. All the data is in place. The phones are not saving our kids. They can walk down the road and be quite safe. They don't need to have a phone to get in touch with you about whatever. It's become the way our society has moved, but let us not kid ourselves that it's making the world safer. In fact, we know it's making the world less safe. If you do give your child a phone, then I would urge you to consider using something like Find Friends or Life360. Life360 is particularly nice. It's a free app, and it tells you where your child is on a nice map of the world or where your, phone's, uh, your child's phone is. It also tells you, oh, Johnny just completed a five-mile drive going at 82 miles an hour. You get a message. And it's very helpful. So you have a little bit of a sense of how they're moving in this world, and that's not a bad thing if they're going to have this device that gives them access to the entire world. These devices are used for things like um, ordering drugs in the dorm at NYU. Just like you order a Domino's pizza, you order your marijuana. These devices are used for everything good and bad. Postpone social media until at least 13. Facebook says that, but they know nothing about kids. They just know how to market things to kids. So 13 at a minimum. If they do get social media accounts, I encourage you, I urge you to make sure that you are friends with them and that at least for the first few years you have all passwords and access. That's part of the deal. Why? Because, my friends, you own the phone. They can't get a phone under the age of 18. It's not legally allowed for them to get a phone. They don't have an ATM card that you don't give them, and they don't have a job that you don't help them get to and manage, and they don't make the kind of money they need to support a phone. I know every kid in the audience is like, this guy is full of crap. I totally get it. I totally get it, because if I were you, I'd want my phone as well. But the reality is every person in here loves you and wants to see you be successful, and we know that the phone is a battle, and we're fighting against it. It is not helping you in your mission, which is to be athletic, a student scholar, a a person interested in the arts, a person who is good to their friends, and a person who is engaged fully in this world. And the phone only lets you do some of that, not all of that. You own the phone. This has lots of ramifications. You pay the bill. You can turn off the phone whenever you want. You can use the phone as a device to encourage the kind of behavior that you need to see for your child to become the adult that they want to become. First work, then screens. First work, then play is where I pull that from. That is the, that is the mantra of good parenting. First work, then play. It's how you lead your life. It's why you parents have been successful, because you have done your job first and then played. Yeah, sometimes you procrastinate. Sometimes you play first. But 95% of the time, you first work and then play, and that's why you own a home, or that's why you own a car, or that's why you have a job, and all the rest of it. We need to teach that to our kids, and the screens are a war- reward, not a privilege. So again, you're probably all thinking about it this way, and I apologize if I'm coming off as a preacher. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but these are things that I think we back off of because we get a little scared of our kids. 
We get a little scared of their passion and their drive. If you want to know why they have so much passion and drive, read my other book. Limitations. Think about limitations. Maybe there's no screens from, you know, Monday morning until Friday afternoon. Or maybe the screens are limited during that time. Maybe there's no TV during that time, what have you. But again, think about this. Because when you take something like a phone away or don't have a phone for a child, very quickly they start taking that water bottle and... All of a sudden, instead of the four-year-old playing on the iPad, that water bottle becomes a spaceship. And then it's flying all over the world. And then it's getting into crash and destruction. And then, oh my God, people from outer space saved this, this beautiful spaceship. And they've developed a whole world in their mind. And now they're writing stories and they're coming up with ideas. And this is what helps our kids become the John Lennon and Paul McCartney's of the future or the Stephen Jobs of the future. These guys were not sitting on devices that were sucking them in and giving them pre-prepared information. They were getting creative based upon their own internal sense and their connection to the world. So we have to draw some safe limits. Keeping all screens and computers in shared spaces, particularly when kids use them for homework, I encourage you to use laptops in shared spaces so that you can see what the kids are working on. When they're very young, like 12, 13, 14, they will commonly do things online that you would never expect or believe your child was, uh, was capable of doing. Girls taking their shirts off online for boys who ask for it. Uh, boys sending photos of their genitalia to girls who don't ask for it. All sorts of things that kids will do when they're in the privacy of their room with internet access. This is what a phone allows them to do. I can't tell you how many kids and families I work with who have done these kind of things, who get in trouble, and then it's child pornography, and then they go to the courts, and then they end up in the child psychiatrist's office. Always supervise children on screens. Doors are open. They're not in their room with a screen uh, device. Now, at some point, of course, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 14, maybe it's 13 for your very responsible kid who you truly believe is managing this well, but typically not. Typically, homework on the screens, work on the screens is best done in a common place in the home. If they have to be in their room, the door is open, and I would encourage you to not have full, super-duper Internet access in the kids' rooms. Stop screens at least an hour before bedtime. This is really to help them wind down, just like we might not watch Rambo before bedtime. And also to use blue light blocking devices. We have a lot of them. Maybe you've heard of Flux, F.LUX. It goes on every uh, laptop, if you like, or every uh, desktop. You just add it. It's free software. And you enter your zip code, and it will take the blue light out of the screen at the time it hits dusk or sunset in the area in which you are living. The advantage of that is that blue light blocks melatonin. So when you take blue light out, you let melatonin run free. Melatonin isn't that much of a soporific. It doesn't make us that sleepy. What it does do is it tells us when it's time for bed. It cues us into the time for bed and, and to a lesser degree the time to wake up. So you want melatonin to run in the way that it should, and you do that by blocking blue light. You can do the same thing by using night shift on your iPhone or by using grayscale on your Android. You want some hours before bed for the blue light to dissipate. It makes the screen a little pink, but everything can be read perfectly uh, fine. So if you have an iPhone, I encourage you to take it out right now and go to the utilities And click on utilities, or settings, I'm sorry, and then go down to screen time. It's in the second sort of paragraph of activities there. If you've set it up with a new Apple, you know, version, then it will be logging your screen time. Click on your, your phone. Mine says Jess Shatkin's iPhone. And then it will tell me exactly how much time I've been using my phone over the last week and today 
and you get all these nice statistics. So this is mine on the screen here for last week. I use my phone an hour of two hours and four minutes a day. That's 11% up from last week. I used it for three and a half hours of productivity, three and a half hours of social networking, which is really um, texting and uh, things like Facebook. Uh, an hour and nine minutes for other things. The total weekly was 14 hours and 34 minutes. Look at the total weekly amount of time you spent on your phone in the past seven days for those who have it set up. Tell me what you've come up with. What's the total number of hours you've spent on your phone in the last seven days? 23 hours. You lost an entire day to your phone. That's unbelievable. It's remarkable. Now, some of it was productivity. I'm sure you were emailing. I'm sure that you were doing other things. But if you look at those of our kids, you'll see something different. So you look at mine. The second screen is my mail, Messenger, Facebook, Amazon, Safari, whatever. And then look at the far right. That's the amount of pickups per day. I averaged 63 pickups a day of my phone. Now, 85. I'm a doctor. I got to pick up my phone. I don't know. People call. It's like my pager. We don't wear pagers anymore as doctors. We get buzzed all the time. That's how we do it. This is my son, Julian. He's 18. He was down 20% from last week. He was at 24 hours last week total use. He was at 2 hours and 54, hours, 54 minutes this last week. Most of his time, you can see, was spent on Safari, watching videos, memes, Instagram, Snapchat, messaging, and then some gaming. He spent 20 hours and 18 minutes last week on his phone. 20 hours, and this is not listening to music, my friends. This is not music. Music doesn't get counted. This is actually looking at the screen or being involved with the screen. He had 139 pickups per day, and look in the lower right-hand corner. He had 762 notifications all week, an average of 109 notifications a day. That means his pocket buzzed 109 times a day. If there's one thing we know that distracts people, it's being constantly tapped on the shoulder. None of us multitasks. We have tons of data. We do not multitask. We can do lots of things in series or in parallel. We can do more than one thing um, in, a, in a chunk of time, but we can't do more than one thing at once other than like walk and talk. So what we're doing is allowing our kids to be disrupted constantly throughout the day, interrupted. Oh, Wall Street Journal just sent something. Oh, your friend just sent something. Oh, so-and-so just sent something. They're constantly being needled, so they're picking it up. And my son's 18. He has a lot fewer people to impress these days than people who are 13 or 15. And so he gets fewer notifications than some other kids. 139 pickups a day. He looked at his phone 139 unique times. So just something to think about. And since you own the phone, you can have some management over this. This went down. This went down by 20% because the week before we went over this on his phone. Now I want to talk to you about media literacy. Our kids are exposed to tons of media, much more now that they're actually having full-on supercomputers in their pockets. So what, I, what adolescents are often enthusiastic about and charged up about, and the kids at Fieldston School in the Bronx in Riverdale this last week had a sit-in because they were angry that, that uh, African-American and Asian studies and Latino studies weren't being taught in school to everybody. That upset them. They stayed in their school overnight. Human justice, social justice, human rights really uh, resonates with young people. And it's ironic that as much as they want to fight against the man, and the man may be you as a parent or the teacher or a superintendent, the man may be whomever, 
But the man really who is manipulating them are the corporations. And the corporations are manipulating them with media. So we need to help our kids understand through teaching media literacy at home and in school that actually the media is manipulating them and to encourage them to make good choices about what they want to watch and what they want to view and how they want to do it. But understand that when you see an ad like this, this is Beyonce, and I had some other very, very sexualized images that are out in the media that I had put on these slides, but Phil said, you know, that may be too much. <laughs> so I understand that. But recognize that my kid grew up, my kids grew up in an apartment in New York City, and as soon as you opened my daughter's windows when she was in about third grade, there was a Calvin Klein ad that looked like an orgy just across the street. People who barely had hit puberty, who were totally unclothed except for a little bit of underwear with their hands and faces everywhere on each other. You've seen the ad. We've all seen the ad. This is a, an ad for a perfume. There's lots of sexualization here. First of all, it's called the heat. What do we call it when an animal is ready to make babies? We call it they've gone into heat. We look at the shape of the object, look at how she's dressed and so forth. This is one. This is, this is like the mildest sexualized image I could find. So it's out there in huge numbers, and our kids are being exposed to it. Here's an interesting ad. This is uh, George Clooney, who, who has a uh, tequila company called Casa Amigos, House of Friends. He makes his tequila. He makes it in Mexico. You can see he's enjoying a drink with the laborers, who I'm sure he's paying a great wage to down there. This ad wouldn't bother me so much. This ad wouldn't offend me if it weren't for the fact that in the same ad as he's drinking tequila and showing these beautiful barrels and everything else, he's riding a motorcycle without a helmet. A third of kids who ride a motorcycle under the age of 18 ride without helmets. One of my best friends was 10 and died when his minibike flipped over. He wasn't wearing a helmet. And drinking and alcohol. I thought George Clooney was one of the good guys. But, you know, this is just remarkable how thoughtless people can be and how thoughtless corporations can be. And what they're marketing is all the things that are vintage bikes. Cool. They look great. When I showed this ad when it came out and my son was 15, I said, what do you think? He said, that's awesome. But he's being manipulated. We're all being manipulated by this. So these are fools, not cools. All right. What about Heineken and the Nintendo game device there? Do, do you play Nintendo as a parent? I don't. Why is Heineken doing this? Why is the scotch being sold through snowmen? Why is the mojito that Bacardi's just mixed for you being sold by people who've barely hit puberty themselves? Because they know that young people look to this, they idealize it, they want to be like it, it's tough, it's cool, and it's going to sell to them. And addiction always starts, as I've told you, in the early, mid-teen years. So that's where it starts, and the companies know it. Assemble your fantasy team. If you drink... Cuervo Gold, all these women are going to want to be with you. Go after the vampire craze because that's what young people are interested in. Here's an ad that doesn't at first glance look too offensive. It's a bunch of people. They happen to be black. They're at, a, at an amusement park. They're going down a roller coaster. That looks fun. They're young adults. And only in the corner is the Newport ad for cigarettes. This ad would not be offensive were it not for the fact that there are up to 10 times more ads for tobacco in black neighborhoods than others. That's because we market unhealthy products to people who live in poorer neighborhoods as a salve for all the discomfort they're feeling and to choke them with things that make them sick. I think that if our young people are more activated about this, they might have something to say, just like the kids at Fieldston this last week. It also happens that, you know, just say no is a terrible ad, but the tobacco companies have gone just 
absolutely after it, making fun of it, it happens as well that half of all tobacco is sold to people with mental illness. So again, another vulnerable population that the companies target and they market towards. It is shameful, and our kids need to know it. Looking at uh, e-cigarette use, it's only gone up. So if you look at the statistics, there's a little graph with lines. I don't know if I can point to it on the screen here. Nope, I just screwed everything up. Uh, Okay, but there's a line. You can see that tobacco use was coming down, but it's only gone up. This last year amongst high school students, e-cigarette use has gone up 78%, and in middle school, e-cigarette use has gone up 48%. Tobacco overall has gone up so that now 27% of high school seniors are using tobacco in some form in the last month, and 7% of middle school kids. E-cigarettes, which were initially designed theoretically to help people stop smoking, have now started many more people smoking, and we don't know what the effect of these devices is in terms of heavy metals, in terms of addiction, all the rest of it. But we see a great deal of it. And they're no dummies either when it comes to media education. The jewel markets with images that they think young people will find effective and attractive. So they are manipulating our kids. And our kids are being manipulated because it looks cool. Look at that guy with the bleach blonde hair and he's got or white hair and he's holding the jewel up to his eye. I guess that looks cool. Look at the woman with the peace signs. Yeah, it's so cool. I'm smoking a jewel. This other one who's totally disaffected in the right-hand corner with a jewel in her mouth, just like every teenager feels at times like, oh, I could care less about life. You know, that resonates with young people. Look at the woman in, of the, in the group of four with the long ponytail. That's the uh, Ariana Grande ponytail. She's standing like Ariana Grande. These companies are not dumb. They pay millions of dollars to get people to put ads together that will appeal to our kids, and this is exactly what we are up against. So our phones only give them more opportunities to be exposed to this. I'm not saying get rid of the phone. I'm not saying don't give your kid a phone. We have to be very thoughtful about how we use these things. 15 and 17 year, 15 to 17 year olds are 16 times more likely to jewel than those 25 to 34. The jewel was made theoretically for those older people who are trying to stop smoking. It's the younger people who are using them. So there's another aspect of the phones that allows our kids to constantly feel what we call FOMO, right? What we all call FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. And just like the Harry Potter Marauders map, if you're a Harry Potter fan, that's this map that these guys come upon early in one of the movies or books, and they're able to see where everybody is in the, in the uh, castle. I'm going to show you what the snap map does. I think this is what I'm supposed to click. And now I'm supposed to, oh, there we go. Go down here and push this button, and let's just watch the snap map for a second. What should we do now? I don't know. Let's see what's going on. Nearby. You just go like that and it changes. Looks like magic. That's cool. Looks like everyone's had a show. They haven't started yet. Let's go. And nothing you say, nothing you do to stop me from thinking about you. But the point is that when our kids have phones and when the phones reside in their bedroom, that our kids feel a lot more FOMO. 
and they feel it because they're constantly reminded through things like the SNAP map of where they are not. And when our kids are left out, they feel pain. Let me ask you for a second what the most painful experience is that you've ever had in your life. Think for a second. If that pain was a physical pain, raise your hand. One person, two people. If that pain is an emotional pain, raise your hand. Exactly. The brain has to be conservative. Three pounds of brain runs 100 and 200, whatever pounds a person. And the brain has doubled up where it can. So the social attachment system has piggybacked onto the brain's pain system. The reason it hurts so much when you are broken up with or when a family member dies or when a dog dies or whatever it is that you care about happens, it hurts so much because the emotional pain centers live within the physical pain centers. And we call it hurt feelings. We say you must be in pain. We get it. And now we know why. Now we can see in the brain that the physical pain centers are the same as the emotional brain centers. What would you do to avoid pain? You'd check your phone hundreds of times a day to make sure you're not missing out. You, emotional pain, because it's so much more potent to us than physical pain. You would jump off the bridge into the river because your friends are doing it. You would drink more alcohol or try the, the weed or try the coke because they're doing it. And you think that you don't want to be left out because being left out is more painful than having your parents yell at you. Being left out means that you may not survive. Why does it matter? Read the book. It matters because what we're trying to do is establish our, our level in the hierarchy, become the best possible mate. And that's what we are evolutionarily driven to do. And the phones and the devices like the Snap Map are building upon that. It is a, they're, they're chasing an evolutionary mandate. So there's a lot of reason that the phones, again, or the digital devices are getting in the way. This is one more of them. There's some other things we can do. And then I want to open this up and hear what you have to say. I say don't allow phones in schools, but you can allow phones in schools, but just limit their access. You know, how does it work? I mean, teachers do this in variable ways. Sometimes they see a phone, they take it away, whatever. But having a phone, I teach in college. Tomorrow I'm giving two midterms. I'm teaching two lecture courses this semester. One has 185 students, one has 255 students. And I will tell them at the beginning of the test, as I've told them before, if I see a phone during the test, I will take away your exam and give you a zero. Because they will cheat on the phones. Now, I don't care if they cheat because that's up to them. I only care about the person who's not cheating and what the cheating of the person does to that person. So if they want to cheat and that's the person they are, I can't change them. But I don't want someone else to be at a disadvantage because they have notes on their phone that they're going to look at. We've seen this happen time and again. But that's a simple thing. What about the fact that they're being buzzed 110 times a day? And so they're constantly being distracted and not learning or paying attention in class. Class is boring. Well, it's a whole lot more boring when you're paying attention to your phone instead of the teacher or what else is going on. So limiting access in phones. In our most troubled schools in New York City, in the boroughs, what we do is we don't allow phones in schools where the kids have the most trouble, but it's late by then. So having some restrictions or thoughts about phones matters. There may be a place to check them in. There may be a place to leave them in the locker. There may be a place to put them in the front of the classroom and check them after the class is over, give a break between classes, however you do it. Good health. Good health. The triumvirate of good health that we've always talked about is exercise, sleep, and nutrition. And we know a lot about these things now. We know that if you sleep more, you do better in every single parameter. You have better memory, you have better cognition, you have better attention, less irritability, better mood, less anxiety, less depression. Tons of studies. Even an hour a day makes a difference. We don't tend to uh, 
teach sleep in school, there's a lot we can do. We don't tend to teach nutrition in school. We know a lot about nutrition. We don't tend to have exercise like we used to have. We know that exercise treats mild to moderate depression as well as therapy and as well as medication. Isn't that amazing? Now if you just get out and jog four or five times a week and go to the gym and you're feeling mild to moderately depressed, I don't mean like bummed out today. I mean actually that diagnosis of depression that I give, you can actually alleviate that with exercise. This is... for some of us, it's not mind-boggling at all, but, uh, but it's impressive. And we can teach sleep, and we can teach nutrition, and we can have a big impact on how our kids function and how well they do and how protected they are. School start times. I know that's a, that's a big one, but I can just tell you this, that when we start school on a sleep schedule that is consistent with a, an adolescent's natural rhythm, and for a variety of reasons our adolescents do tend to have a delayed sleep cycle. They stayed up late and guarded the cave for all sorts of reasons that evolution dictated. And so they want to go to bed at 1, 2, 3 in the morning and wake up at 9, 10, 11. And they do much better. In every study of starting school after the, age, after the hour of 8.30 or so, typically 9, 9.30, those kids have higher IQ scores, higher SAT scores, better grades, fewer absences, less sick time. They're happier. They have less depression and less anxiety. How we get there is a challenge, I know. The Center for Disease Control recommends that American high schools don't start before 8.30. When do you start? 7.30 or 7-something. This is a CDC recommendation. Only 20% of American schools adhere to it. Oh, by the way, in one Kentucky county where they delayed school an hour, so they started school at 9 instead of 8, they had an 18% reduction in motor vehicle accidents. That, that matters. Our kids are more awake. And it's not only when they're driving to school. It's when they're driving to their job. It's when they're driving after school. They're tired all day long because they're underslept. After-school programming, where we do it, it works really well. I know it costs money. Lots of things cost money. But where we have after-school programming for music, the arts, and exercise or, you know, athletics, our kids are off the street. They probably, if you start at 7.30, what time do they get out? Two o'clock? What time do you leave work? What time are you home? Moms and dads are home at 6, 7, 8. Kids are off at 2. What are they doing? Some are doing homework. (laughs) Some are playing football. And some are smoking weed, and some are home alone with their girlfriend or boyfriend having sex, and some are hanging out at the mall, and some are spray painting, and some are, you know, stealing things. And this is a, a formula for disaster. In Iceland, I know it's a small country, but they built in mandatory after-school programming for their schools. They actually required that kids do something after school in the school. They also set up a curfew. Can you imagine a curfew for kids? If you were under 16, you had to be in by 10 o'clock Sunday through Thursday and by midnight after on Fridays and Saturdays. And what they found was that Iceland's rate of cigarette smoking, which was the highest in Europe, went to the lowest in Europe, from about 25% to about 4%. They found less vandalism. They found less unhappiness. They found less anxiety. They had huge gains. They kept the kids busy in meaningful activities that the kids wanted to do. What's wrong with teaching a kid to play guitar? or having him be in a rock band, or having him mountain climb. They did cool stuff, but it costs money. Teaching resilience via neuroscience. I think we can use neuroscience curriculum. I think all American high schools should have a neuroscience curriculum in which they teach things like uh, sleep, communication skills, emotion identification, cognitive behavior therapy skills, time management, goal setting. When we teach those things, our kids do really well. 
they actually can learn these things and it makes them happier and they function better. We have data on that. Sex education. So most of our sex education hasn't been that effective, partly because a lot of kids are taken out of it because their parents don't want them having it. But I'll just cut to the chase. The reality is that most of our sex education doesn't stop our kids from having sex. None of our sex education stops our kids from having sex. Let me just be clear about that. We know that universal drug prevention, like D.A.R.E., doesn't work. In fact, most D.A.R.E. programs make things worse. More kids who go through D.A.R.E. are likely to use drugs than kids who don't go through D.A.R.E. We can talk about that offline. But targeted drug abuse prevention does work. If you find the kids who are at risk of drug abuse and you teach them and you manage their um, understanding and ideas around drugs, actually they tend to use fewer drugs. And when they use fewer drugs, the kids around them who think those kids are cool use fewer drugs. That's called the herd effect. The herd follows those leaders. So targeted drug abuse education does work, but not generic. Where we have school-based mental health, we see a lot more kids getting help. About 95% of kids who have a psychiatric diagnosis follow up when there's mental health in the school. About 13% follow up when there is not mental health services in the school. So we need to have mental health services in the school, and it not only helps the kids, those 50% who have a major mental illness, by the time they're 18 or so, but it also helps the other kids because we become more sensitive, more open, and we gain things from that. And finally, mentorship. There's a lot of mentorship programs that don't work. In fact, most aren't effective, but there are evidence-based programs, and when they work, they can be quite useful. So on that end, that's my uh, comments about um, parenting in the digital age, and I encourage you to ask questions or or talk amongst yourselves. Thank you. And I should say before I start just that I very much appreciate being invited. I love speaking in schools about these kinds of topics. I think there's a lot we're doing right, and I think you're all doing a lot right by showing your attendance here tonight. But I think there's also things that all of us, myself included, could be doing better. So thanks for being here, and we can follow whoever you like. So many of us here with middle school and high school kids um, have a conversation daily about Fortnite. True? Fortnite, anyone that's on it. And so we all have seen our children like become addicted from it. And it's gone from like addicted to addiction and now we all think they're very, you know, obsessed. And we're using these words I know around them and we all are. And now we think our children are like possessed by it. Like it's like demons are coming out when they're on it. So any suggestions yes. for right. Fortnite usage? And and part of it is they have a, a great um response about what it does for their communication skills and their, you know, all at each other's houses together and sometimes apart, but they're communicating and they have a great persuasive essays written about why Fortnite is good for them. Absolutely. And, and part of it is, you know, it makes sense that the part that's driving us all crazy, we really don't know what to do about it. So I have some ideas, but the, first about the, the latter point that the kids say it's great, it, it's social, we communicate, we're on the headsets, we're all talking to each other. Lots of arguments about why it's good for them. This is just like when you talk to someone who's addicted to marijuana. What they tell you is all the data on how marijuana is good for you, exactly where it's grown, how it actually enhances your antioxidant capability. It's not bad for your lungs. If you talk to someone who's addicted to weed, you will get chapter and verse of every single study ever written that favors marijuana. So we tend to do that. So I wouldn't make much of that because there's lots of ways to communicate effectively as a young person. Phone, texting, um, other sorts of computer games and devices, and actually being outside with a ball or whatever else. I think that if it's gotten to the point in your family where things are really out of hand and it's getting to the point of obsession, like we can't control it, then what you enforce is what we call a digital fast. You take a week off. Because when you take a week off, you see huge changes in the kids. 
they're going to give you a hell of a time for a couple of days. It's unfair. You have no idea. You're the worst parent in the world. I hate you. I hate you. I never liked you. Even when I said I liked you before, I didn't like you. <clears throat> and eventually they will settle down. And they will find other things to do because they will get bored. And boredom is good for us. It allows us to create and think about other things. Kids spend less time in the natural world. They don't sit outside and dig a hole in the dirt anymore. I got to tell you, there's a lot of data suggesting digging holes in dirt is really good for kids. So a digital fast is my prescription for it's gotten out of control. If you can't arbitrate anymore, and every time you say 45 minutes, it becomes 55 minutes, and then it becomes an hour and 55 minutes, it's time to cut them loose for a while and then bring it back in slowly if you believe that's an okay thing to do. Okay, so this is probably a problem that's going to hit everybody in the room. Instagram. I am blown away by what specifically girls are posting of themselves on Instagram. And as I'm monitoring my son and trying to stay on top of things, I'm embarrassed to even look. I feel like a pervert while I'm trying to make sure he's not doing something stupid. There's now a new term called being Kavanaugh'd. I'm very concerned about everything that's being posted digitally, whether it's the kid who's posting it or the kid who's receiving it, now has a digital footprint that will follow that person all the way through to who knows if they're applying for a security position within the government, they won't get the job. Because of a receipt of some picture 35 years ago. I don't know what to do about this. Now, we've tried the helicopter approach. That doesn't work. We've tried the removal of the device. That doesn't work. Why doesn't that work? Um, I mean, I understand you can't can't stop what kids are posting and and who their friends are. oxygen away. Um, I, and I'm not saying you should take away the phone, but again, I think there's, there might be more there than carry on, but well, there might be something there. We've limited. We've yeah. tried that. We're yeah. still trying that. Today we're trying that. Um, this is a constant struggle. Um, I don't know what to do as a parent, and I would hope that somebody else could stand up and say, hey, here's what you do to stop this. But unfortunately, everybody is sending, specifically with girls, sending out the pictures of themselves and posting it everywhere. If I was a boy, I'd be looking at them, too. Of course. I mean, why not? Right. But at the same time, there's got to be some way to put a limit on that. I don't know what to do about this problem. Yeah, interesting. You know, I, ha- I have a case of a kid who goes to a school in New York. This just happened about a month ago, and a, a 15-year-old girl in the school posted a sexy picture of herself. It wasn't showing anything that you might not see in a print ad, but it was very suggestive. And he got that uh, sent to him well, as well as a bunch of other people and he sent it to one of the, a couple of the boys on the basketball team and said something you know like you want this or whatever it was and then one of the kids said you're being a jerk don't send that stuff around brought it to one of the teachers who brought it to the principal the kid got suspended so sometimes schools have something to say about this because in this case they felt like he was kind of slandering one of the other kids in the school but Generally speaking, I think this comes down to parents monitoring. So these girls, in the cases you're talking about, whose parents aren't keeping an eye on things, who aren't friends on Instagram, who aren't watching what their kids are posting, and who are letting this through. And I think we have to rely on each other. I think I don't know another way to do it. If you're not going to take your kid's phone away, you're not going to make them not have an Instagram account, which they may shadow somewhere else or you know have on a computer somewhere that you're not aware of then I think, and, and it may be impossible, then I think we have to really work together as parents to police each other. What's even worse is I, I know 
I'm noticing, and it's not just with my son, I've heard this from other parents with other, other kids, is that what kids will do is they will uh, get some type of media, save it on their phone, offload it to some cloud position, delete the connection off their phone, and then they access it through their computer outside of that so that when a parent is looking at the phone, it's not there. There's nothing in the history on that. But it's out on cloud, which they have control of. And of course, then they're communicating that all, all, all over the place. And it gets even more devious than that. We have a thousand-person uh, group here of kids who are all sharing this information with each other to keep it from us. Well, if that's the case, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I think that if it's that devious and you're that scared about it, I, I don't see a problem removing the phone. You didn't raise your hand when I said, does your child absolutely need a phone? child doesn't need a phone. If that's what it takes, look, I'd rather not spend the 1000 bucks a year or whatever I spend for my kids each to have a phone, 2000 bucks a year. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it's real money. I don't need them to have a phone. I mean, they, I got by without a phone. You did too. There's computers everywhere, by the way, so if they need to send a text or a message, they can always log on somewhere. So I think that we might have to, like, we might have to come back at this a little bit harder than we've wanted to. I understand how difficult it is. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to think, you in particular, do you think every kid has, like, a problem with this? Or do you think just, like, certain kids? That's a great question. I think that certain kids have a problem with it. I don't think every kid has a problem with it. So you can use that argument with your mom tonight when you're talking about phones. <laughs> but I also think that it's very hard for most people to not sometimes have a problem with it. I mean that I think that there are some kids who have a lot of problems with it, but then I think a lot of us sometimes have a little bit of a problem with it. We sometimes make a mistake. I'll, I'll tell you something. When I was in my, I went to medical school a little bit late. I went to medical school when I was 29. I was a little bit older. And I ended up getting a pager um, when, in my first job as a, as a training doctor, as a resident, when I was 33. And I thought it was pretty cool because people didn't have cell phones back then. I mean, very few people did. And I got a pager, and that pager, you could write words on it, so you could send messages. It's called an alphanumeric pager. We used to send messages to it. And you know what we started doing at 33? 33 is the age Jesus was when he died. That's pretty mature. And you know what I was doing at 33? I started sending messages to people that were crazy. Like, we all started texting messages to each other that were all silly and goofy and sometimes sexually suggestive and all sorts of things. I was 33 years old. And it was the first time I had that kind of technology in my pocket, and we would all tease each other now and again about things. So I think we all do it sometimes. I think that we all make mistakes. I think we all need the help of our parents when we're young, particularly with a phone. But I don't think that most of us are just like, go, you know, bananas with it. I think it just can sometimes get in the way. Thanks. Just uh, two quick things. One, just a suggestion. There's something called the Disney Circle. That tends to help. Take a look at it. You can actually shut down different applications on everybody's phones. The kids absolutely hate us for getting it. <clears throat> um, yes, yeah, so that's a good point. All servers will allow you, all, all phone carriers will allow you to get to a point where you can basically shut down apps or shut down the phone entirely or turn off the Internet. So it's another thing to think about if you start to see this behavior. But it is a lot of policing on a parent's part. Uh, next, the, you talked about the DSM and such. Do you see any link between this and autism? Nothing that we know of. In fact, for a lot of kids who have social discomfort and communication problems, 
They particularly enjoy the phones and the internet world because that's where their friends are, because that's where they really can connect without face-to-face and all the discomfort associated with that. So we don't believe at this point that this is causing, contributing, or anything. In fact, it it seems that kids who who lack social skills often will benefit because they'll feel like they're connected this way and they want to feel connected. Probably too early to know. Um, One of the the things that I have um, a problem with um, is that my kids, um, while they're doing their homework, aren't doing their homework. Um, and I have to constantly keep checking on them over and over again, where it's, it's a lot of energy to make sure that they're on track. What would you suggest? I would suggest that you come up with a plan where your kids can... What, what's happening is that they're getting notifications while they're studying, they're checking Facebook while they're studying, they're kind of bouncing around to different things. So I would suggest that you have them do, if you can, with them one thing at a time, and you tell them, listen, every hour, take 15 minutes at the end of the hour, or the end of the 45 minutes, and check your, get on your stuff, if you can do that. Now, it takes a disciplined person to be able to stop at 15 minutes or just do 10 minutes of that and then go back to the work. Another reason why I suggest that computers and homework should be done in common places so you can help to keep an eye on it. Huge amount of resources that you have to now devote to keeping an eye on them. But it's not so different from when we were kids and we would do our homework and we would listen to music in the background or we would start to do drawings or doodles or we would pick up the phone and call our friends. So it's, it's just made it much more accessible to have those distractions. So those, it's always been there. And this is what my mom said to me. She said, listen, call your friend at the end of the hour or you know, you have a snack at the end of the hour, whatever it was if I was doing my homework. I think the same thing here. We just need to be monitoring them very closely. And if we can have them not do their homework on the computer, which is sometimes possible, then that's one approach. And, to, and put the phone in the fruit bowl while they're doing the homework so they're not distracted by that. But if they've got to be online, then I think we need to think about uh, monitoring them more carefully. Or turning off these apps. You can turn these apps off for minutes. You can turn the, the Internet off. You can say, great, you need to write an essay on Microsoft Word. Terrific. We're going to disconnect the Internet now so you can do that. You can be really focused. You know, I do a lot of writing for my job, and when I write, I turn off the mail. I don't have it beeping constantly at me. It's too distracting. I gotta, it takes me 15 minutes to get into it. So I, if I'm constantly looking at emails, I just can't do it. I'm going to go ahead and have uh, Mr. Guarati go ahead and see if he can um, just have a couple of highlights up here from some of the things the district is doing, and then we'll go ahead and hear in the closing minute. So, Deb? Hi, everybody. Thanks. That's quite a bit to think about. I have uh, three small children, my children of my own, and uh, gave me quite a bit to think about tonight, so thanks for that. Um, show of hands, how many of you in the, in the audience tonight are aware of uh, Common Sense Media? So quite a few. How many of you have been on and seen the resources for parents on Common Sense Media? So I wanted to spend a little bit of time to talk about that, um, specifically to highlight some of the resources that are on there, but also to talk and, and make sure that we're all aware that uh, Common Sense Media is the site where we get our digital literacy curriculum that we teach to our students in, in all of our schools. So there are quite a few topics that students get through their library time in both uh, Primrose, starting in, in Primrose and going through SIS and continuing on through the middle school and high school um, it, through their librarian time where they learn things um, about things like uh, being able to 
understand what they see on on the internet, how to manage their digital profile, how to keep their profile secure, some of the things you talked about before about sharing images, looking at images on the internet, those are topics that are embedded within our curriculum in our schools already. So something I think is uh, important to know. We're going to be posting some of those resources to be a little more specific about what activities your children, if they've gone through Primrose and and through SIS specifically, have gotten through. Each of our children, as I go through fifth grade, get uh, what we call a digital passport through Common Sense Media as well. Um, that certifies that they've actually been through that training program as well. This is a good opportunity tonight to talk about how we can use the curriculum we're doing in schools to partner with you, the parents, and the community to help make sure that you're aware of what they're doing in schools and you can go on that site and you, and you can uh, use some of the tools that your children learn to use in school as well. Uh, what, I'm sorry? I'm going to show you right now. Um, and I have tonight to take home with you, I have actually that, the idea of uh, authoritative parenting um, and involving your children. One thing that Dr. Shacken said that really struck me and it's something we focus on in the school district is making sure that the conversations that you have with your children about media literacy and about effective use of the Internet really uh, comes down to making sure that we're reinforcing the idea that we love our children and that we are, we're here to support their growth and their development over time. One of the ways to do that is to have that conversation with the, with the children. So I have samples off of the Common Sense Media site about uh, family media contracts. So some of the things we heard from the audience tonight, um, how do I manage this? How do I, how do I make sure that it's there? It's, it's quite a bit of, of management to make sure that the children are engaged with the, in, with the technology in the correct ways. These are things that you can work with your child to develop a contract that, that, that you, you determine together how it is they're going to use the, the technology that they have at their disposal, when they're going to use it, and they sign it. And that gives you that structure for the consequences when it comes time, if it comes time, to actually enforce those consequences. And I have plenty of samples for that, um, and that's also available for download on the Common Sense site. So um, the Common Sense Media site, uh, very simple, commonsensemedia.org. You can see that, right? So here's that site there. Can you see that well enough? Nod, please. Yes. Okay. Um, there's three main uh, sections of the website. Um, on the top left of the site here, you see there's a section here for parents. Um, there's a section for educators. You can feel free to browse through there. Um, and there's also um, for advocates. Then I want to concentrate on the uh, for parents site. When you click on uh, the for parents site here, you see quite a few um, media ratings. Common Sense Media has a rating system that they give to all media. Um, I have an account here that I'll, I'll log into in a second to, to model for you. Um, I have a six-year-old and, and twin three-year-olds. And my wife and I often think about um, what is appropriate media, how do we really know what appropriate media is for them to be watching. Common Sense Media has a rating system that recommends specific types of media. I'm talking video media for your children. You can take them, you can look through the the expert's opinion of that media, and you can put them into your save list um, so that those become part of that media contract with your children. Um, So that's something that's in there as well. This middle tab here is something that's really important to take a look at. It's called Parents Need to Know for good reason. Um, So here under the need to know, they break out the critical information for you to browse through based on the age of your children. There's a two to four age group, five to seven, eight to nine, 10 to 12, and teens, 13 plus. 
There's also topic lists of things. If you're browsing specifically for your question before, how do I manage the cell phone? I heard someone talk about the, the Disney uh, management piece. I'm sorry, I forgot the name of it, um, where you can actually block uh, specific apps there. There's information on here as well. So there's a top, just reading down the topic list, in case you can't read that. The top one is cell phones, screen time, social media, privacy and online safety, learning with technology, violence in the media, and a whole plethora of other topics for you to look through. To the right of that, and to your question before about Fortnite, there are ultimate guides to the latest and greatest apps that are out there or resources that are out there, things to help us learn as parents and as educators about what these things are. Um, I remember I was in the classroom when, when um, Snapchat came out, and my students said, oh, I'm whatever the lingo was at the time, I'm snapping or chatting or whatever they say, right? Uh, and I said, what's that? I didn't even know what it was. Um, and so this is a resource that I was able to use to learn about it. So the next time I engaged with the child about it, I already knew the answers to the questions I was asking, um, just to see to what extent the child really knew about where does that information go? Where, where does that information live? Post a picture on there. Who owns that picture? Things like that are important things just to, just to get your child thinking about um, from a privacy perspective. Um, there's also a section in here specifically about parent controls, which was a theme that I saw that came up tonight and some of the questions that came up as well. Um, so if you go into that parent controls, we'll just look at that real quick. This is the uh, Parent's Ultimate Guide to Controls. This is an important one. I'll zoom in on this a little bit. So here are a lot of really powerful resources for you that answer, I think, a lot of the questions that came up in the audience tonight. What are the best parent controls for blocking websites and filtering content, monitoring our students' use uh, for the kids' phones, for tracking location, specific for iOS devices, Android devices, whatever you like? Um, how do I control for specific apps like Snapchat, like Instagram, right? I got that right? Um, do I need to worry about my kids disabling parent controls? Well, let's hope that's uh, adjustable. <laughs> um, I think if you don't have a high schooler, or even if you do, this is a good place to go to try to limit, limit any, any um, incidents that have already happened. So um, I hadn't heard that, speci that specific statistic personally, but uh, that's, that's an alarming one. And, and I'll tell you, if I were a parent of a high schooler and I heard that statistic, I'd be on this site tonight, and I'd be taking a look at some of those things. I'd also be having a, a, a pretty detailed conversation with my child as soon as I got home, unless they're here, of course. Um, there's another piece uh, of this in terms of uh, reading and literature. Oh, uh, one other thing. I'm sorry before I go there. Um, there are a number of books. Dr. Shackett uh, talked about some of his books that are out there as well. This, this uh, Common Sense Media website, it looks like when you click on the book tab that it's going to give you books to read about uh, media use and, and effective use of media. And that's true. It does do that. 
Um, but it, what it also does is it allows you to look at um, uh, uh, books for the appropriate age level. It also answers questions like, is it okay, and this is especially important when we get to the tween-teen area, is it okay to allow my child to read a book that is, of, uh, that is content that's a little bit above what I believe their, their age is or of, of a higher reading level? There's some great resources and learning for parents around those areas as well. So that's something you might want to take a look at. Uh, I know that uh, the, the apps and games piece is something that comes up, and as I, I know the Fortnite craze kind of popped up, um, there's a list of the best uh, and most trending games that are out there here as well, so you can take a look at that and you can, you can read about them and answer your questions. There's a section on this website where you can ask an expert as well if the information you're looking for is not actually there. Um, and considering the fact that this is the basis of the curriculum that we teach students about digital uh, citizenship in our schools, um, this, I think, is probably the best place to go as a community for us to speak the same language, to make sure that the reinforcement that our children get and the learning that they do in our school is also reinforced at home and try to reinforce that partnership. Um, So I, I thought it was under the parents need to know, but to be honest with you, I just did a little search on here, the website, to find this. But the resource that I have for you tonight is in the family media contract. If you just type in family media contract, you will find a fillable form that you can adjust and edit to your needs. Um, and the last, the last resource I want to share with you um, is actually not through Common Sense Media. Um, there's a... a, a a site that called iRules, uh, which is something you also might want to check out. There's an, uh, the, the book is called, uh, there's a book called iRules, uh, and the author of that book's name is Janelle Burley Hoffman, and she's also um, very good about um, helping foster a tech-healthy family. She gives some practical strategies for fostering a tech-healthy family as well. And some of the things that you see on the Common Sense Media site also overlap with some of the messages that she sends. Things like involving your children in making the decision um, as to how they're going to manage that. With you, of course, as Dr. Shackin said, maintaining veto power um, over the things that they're doing. But putting that, there's something to be said for putting that down in writing and putting your name, your, your pen to paper, and putting your autograph on that, that piece of paper as your, as your word and as your bond, um, that you'll, you'll maintain that. It also gives us that uh, recourse when, when things do, as they often do, and, and uh, it's how we learn as we kind of go off the rails a little bit, and then we're able to course correct back on with some of the consequences we established. Any questions about Common Sense Media that I can answer? I rules, yeah, I can show you that side too. Here it is here. This is the book here. It's, uh, the book is uh, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up. So it might be helpful for you. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Well, I want to say thank you for everybody coming tonight. Uh, Dr. Shackin, thank you so much for coming up from the city. I appreciate that, so thank you. Kevin, thanks for uh, your time tonight. And again, what we'll do this evening, if you uh, pre-registered, I believe we'll have your email. So we'll go ahead and take that, email some of this contacts and links to there. If not, we'll again try to put that on our social media experience. 
And then also um, learning, I, I, much like Mr. Guadagni, I, I do not text very much. I don't do that. So this uh, FOMO piece was very interesting, uh, fear of missing out. Uh, if you have friends tonight, they're not missing out. We will have this on Channel 18, and we'll have it on our video. So thanks, everybody, for coming. Have a good night.